Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, David Lund. David Lund was unfortunate in that he lost absolutely everything in the Wall Street crash of 1929. All of his savings gone, just like that. Of course, this isn't true. David Lund did not lose all of his life savings. And fortunately, did not have to endure the Wall Street crash. But if you would like me to lie about you, then head on over to Patreon and see what's what. I'm sure you know the drill by now. Otherwise, though, I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to episode 15 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Thirty Years' War. Last time we watched Ferdinand become King of Bohemia, despite the odds. Those odds being a not-so-stellar track record and reputation, which he had spent his life building. Several factors, including the lack of alternative candidates and a barrage of promises, helped convince the Bohemians to approve of Ferdinand as their new king. Yet we didn't just see Ferdinand become king. We also saw something very troubling happen in Fradshin Castle in Prague. Just because the chapter seemed to be settled in Ferdinand's favour, it didn't mean the discussion was over. As history has told us, Bohemia so feared for its privileges and so chafed under the repressive policies of the Habsburgs that a significant number of the nobility determined to rise against Ferdinand's family for the third time in ten years. We ended the last episode with the defenestration of Prague, a tale which has been told in so many histories, but we noted that even while the Bohemians acted with tenacious courage, they were not yet brave enough to actually depose their Habsburg king. Initially, their revolt was based mainly on a defence of their privileges, and men were called to arms, not to rid the country of the Habsburgs, but to restore the freedoms which had previously been given by the Habsburgs, and which Bohemians had fought so bitterly for. Thus, it was the regents, Catholic representatives of the Habsburgs, that were thrown out of the windows of Prague's Hradschin castle. These individuals were blamed for warping the orders of the Emperor Matthias and of conspiring against their countrymen. In time, of course, the Bohemians would indeed fly into total rebellion against the Habsburgs and offer their crown to another, this one an enemy of the Habsburg family and a power determined to evict the Habsburg influence from Bohemia and make way for a new order in the Holy Roman Empire. This power, whom the Bohemians offered their crown to, was none other than Frederick V, the Elector Palatine, a 
and Frederick's cause recommended itself to the Bohemians because of his connections above all, his history of opposition, and his scheming against the Habsburgs, which also painted him as a candidate who would do all in his power to lead the Bohemians away from Matthias, Ferdinand, and whatever other members of that wretched family attempted to infringe the Bohemians' rights. First things first, though. Though the Bohemians had thrown them out of the windows, they hadn't quite reached the point where they were offering the crown to someone else just yet. So in this episode, we strive once again to meet with Frederick V to remind ourselves exactly who he was and what he wanted, and to examine the pre-war activities of his court, seen in his efforts to undermine the Habsburgs in literally whatever theatre they could, in Bohemia and in the very succession to the office of Holy Roman Emperor itself. This episode is an important last step into the war, but throughout it we're going to try and get to the bottom of Frederick's responsibility for what happened, as well as the responsibility of his advisors, Christian of Anhalt foremost among them. By the end of this episode we shall be well prepared to move into what is really the second phase of this story, where the Bohemian Revolt erupts in all of its terrible glory, and we ask what this meant for the Habsburgs. For now though we've got a great story still to tell, diplomacy, intrigue and plots succeeding and failing, so I hope you enjoy what we have in store for you. Either way, join me as I take you to the Rhine Palatinate once again. Christian of House Ascania, most commonly known as Christian of Anhalt, arrived in Dresden, Saxony, in 1586. As one of five sons from a German principality which did not yet accept primogeniture, Christian and his four brothers saw their already small lands be split five ways, to the point that precious little remained for Christian by the death of his father. Such a situation compelled him to travel and seek his fortune elsewhere, and Saxony was his most significant stop-off to date. While he was there, he converted to Calvinism, and with a single-minded fervour for his new faith, he embraced all manner of schemes which would help him further its teachings. In 1591, Christian of Anhalt was provided with an ideal opportunity. He was given the chance to lead a Saxon palatine army of German soldiers and mercenaries into France, to assist the Protestant claimant to the French throne, Henry of Navarre. While the army did march, the pledges which Christian had accepted turned out to be empty, and Christian, this 24-year-old prince, was left with a staggering debt of 1.3 million thalers, as well as a harsh lesson not to trust wholeheartedly the commitments made by Germans in times of war. His descendants would still be making efforts to claim back this debt in the early 19th century, incredibly enough. But at that moment, Christian moved to distance himself from this sticky situation, making sure, before he left, to get in touch with several members of the Calvinist International. These connections served him well, and eventually landed him a post as governor of the Upper Palatinate in 1595, a province wedged almost in the centre of Europe, between Bavaria, Bohemia and Saxony. Thus began the relationship between Christian of Anhalt and the Palatinate 
which was to become so infamous and play a considerable role in leading the Palatinate into the Thirty Years' War. From 1595, Anhalt displayed a distinct measure of skill and tact in traversing the sensitive religious divisions of this eastern appendage of the Palatine electors. Since 1329, the Upper Palatinate had been in the position of the Palatine electors, but it remained a separate administration, not to mention a very different economy and climate to its wealthier, more glamorous western neighbour, the Lower Palatinate. Since the elector tended to remain in Heidelberg, that gleaming jewel of the Lower Palatinate, this meant that any governor of the Upper Palatinate, based in the city of Amberg, would have a great deal of independence. To Christian of Anhalt, this position represented nothing less than an opportunity to prove himself, and by the time the Bohemians threw their Catholic regents out of the windows of the Hradschin castle, Charles had engendered a sense of goodwill and loyalty to the electoral family, which was to prove invaluable in the trials to come. Unsurprisingly, Anhalt's impressive body of work, stretching back over two decades, had recommended him as an experienced, capable and resourceful pair of hands to the elector, Frederick IV, and then to his son, who we know a little bit better, Frederick V. Anhalt played an important role in Palatine diplomacy in the decade before the Thirty Years' War. He helped to arrange the Evangelical Union under the leadership of Frederick IV, and he orchestrated arguably his greatest coup, the marital alliance between Elizabeth Stuart and Frederick V. Through these arrangements, Christian of Anhalt was placing his masters in a position of strength, which the Palatinate had traditionally never occupied. Of course, by placing the Palatinate in this position, with its Calvinist electors and its history of anti-Hausberg intrigue, Anhalt greatly increased the tensions within the Holy Roman Empire too. Yet this contribution to tension and anxiety in the Empire's subjects, and his practical contribution towards the actual outbreak of the war which followed, must be juxtaposed with Anhalt's sincere belief that the institutions of the Empire were biased against Protestants, and that they were, in the words of one historian, captured by the Jesuits as agencies of the Counter-Reformation, and, furthermore, that the Habsburg monopoly on the office of Holy Roman Emperor was an inherently bad thing. It is sometimes convenient to blame one figure in particular for the perpetuation of a certain crisis. In Wedgwood's account of Christian of Anhalt, for example, we're given the impression not only that the man was a complete fool, but that this fool had Frederick V under his spell. In arms, in administration and in diplomacy, he showed a superficial excellence, Wedgwood wrote, adding... How brilliant, for instance, had been his management of the English marriage, but he had not paused to consider that a day of reckoning would come when the English king realised that he had been inveigled into a German war. Anhalt's diplomacy with England, with the Dutch United Provinces, with the German princes, and later with the Duke of Savoy, was based on a simple principle. He always promised everything. He calculated that when the German crisis came, his allies would fulfil their side of the bargain before they called on him to fulfil his. He calculated wrong. When the moment came, none of his far-sought alliances bore the strain. To this gloomy picture, Wedgwood also added that Anhalt was not a man who inspired confidence, that he deceived himself, and that Frederick V was so obviously in the hands of his minister that Frederick did nothing without his approval, and thus did nothing to improve the worsening situation in the empire. 
For all these shortcomings, though, Wedgwood could not explain how Anhalt nonetheless forged ahead with a policy which, for an admittedly brief period, did provide the Palatinate with the most impressive security arrangement it had enjoyed since before the Reformation. Granted, Anhalt took advantage of the fears and anxieties of the neighbouring German Protestants in many respects. One is drawn to the Donauwerth incident which we keep coming back to, which lasted from 1607-08, and in which Maximilian of Bavaria invaded and then annexed a majority Protestant town, Donauwerth, into his duchy in spring 1608. And thereafter, he began to persecute the non-Catholics that lived there, with the backing of the Holy Roman Emperor, no less. This event caused such consternation that it led to the aforementioned walkout of several Protestant princes during the 1608 Reichstag, and the establishment of the Evangelical Union shortly thereafter. When reading of these events, we are provided with a choice. Either we can believe that the actors responsible for furthering the set of crises, which erupted in 1618, acted in good faith and out of a genuine fear for their rights and privileges, or we can condemn them for manipulating the situation and feigning concern in order to gain more power for themselves. If one was to apply this deceitful characterization to Anhalt's behaviour though, then we must ask, what his end goal was? Why did Anhalt believe that gathering as many Protestant princes together was necessary, and why did he consistently try to solicit foreign support for the union of Protestant potentates that he was trying to create? Did he strive to gain leverage over the Habsburgs and force them to relinquish their position under threat of war? Perhaps he acted to increase his own power and enrich himself in the process. Yet, in all these hypothetical possibilities, we must ask again, to what end would Anhalt seek such disruptive goals? What if, contrary to Wedgwood's opinion, Anhalt was not acting with dishonesty, but out of a sense of genuine fear, which had been rooted in the Palatinate since the late 1560s, that a Catholic Habsburg conspiracy, powered by the Jesuits, the Pope and the Spanish, was in play? What if we imagine that instead of gathering allies for an uncertain end, Christian of Anhalt was gathering pledges and commitments for a religious war which he believed that the Habsburgs were planning? After moving to govern the Upper Palatinate in 1595 and converting to Calvinism before that, is it not at least feasible that Anhalt himself became persuaded of the possibility that the Habsburgs intended to provoke a religious war in order to further the ends of the Counter-Reformation, which was then gathering apace. This is not to state that the Habsburgs did desire to launch such a confessional war in the name of the Counter-Reformation, but if we examine the situation from Anhalt's and from the Palatine perspective, then one could argue that it becomes easier to understand why Christian of Anhalt was convinced of the eternal danger that the Habsburgs presented. This danger was presented not just against the religious privileges of Protestants throughout the empire, but also against the constitution of that empire, which the Habsburgs would happily sacrifice in the name of their barely veiled quest for absolutist Catholic rule over Germany. Indeed, Frederick was convinced that Ferdinand fully intended to violate the empire's constitution, and Frederick's beliefs were vindicated when Ferdinand did indeed secretly displace Frederick as elector of the Palatinate in favour of Maximilian, in lieu of pay for Maximilian's services during the early phase of the war. But back to Anhalt, and to further understand his position, we must also recall the brothers' quarrel between Rudolf and Matthias, 
and the general inefficiency of Emperor Rudolph in the last two decades of his reign. While we have examined the consequences of this crisis in the Hasburg family already, it is worth looking at another, hitherto unmentioned, side effect. You see, the Supreme Court of the Holy Roman Empire provided great potential for religious division to render it paralysed. Yet, in spite of some incidents during the 16th century, the Supreme Court functioned remarkably well up until the 1590s, when Emperor Rudolf II ceased to see his responsibilities relating to that institution. A purpose of the Supreme Court in the Empire was to implement legislation which the Reichstag had passed, and as part of this process, the Emperor was required to provide his decision on its conclusions. With Rudolf absent from this process, though, the Supreme Court was forced to go around in circles constitutionally, as matters passed by the Reichstag into the Supreme Court would simply be passed back to the Reichstag again, since no emperor was in place to sign off on them. Rudolf's deterioration was having a noted adverse effect on the operation of the empire. It was his family's recognition of this fact, not to mention a desire to conclude the war with the Turks, that compelled the Austrian Habsburg family, its senior members at least, to meet at Linz in 1605, and then to do everything they could to gradually cut the embarrassing Rudolf out In the midst of these crises within the Habsburg family, its international standing notably declined. Faced with revolts in Hungary from 1606 to 1608, in Austria and Bohemia from 09 to 11, and finally a succession crisis with their Spanish cousins from 1612 to 17, the once guaranteed imperial succession seemed at last to be under threat. If the enemies of the Habsburgs could locate another candidate, then the troubled Austrian Habsburg family would be in danger of losing its foothold atop the food chain of the Holy Roman Empire, as the emperor of all the Germans. All of these factors compelled Anhalt to engage in more active diplomatic negotiations than he had in the past, but it also must have seemed as though the actual situation within the empire was particularly grave. The aforementioned troubles faced by the Austrian Habsburgs had been significant for another reason. In their time of need, the Austrian, Bohemian and Hungarian estates, or assemblies, had all made contact with Christian of Anhalt and the Palatine court. This ensured that Anhalt was kept appraised of their fates, so that when the Habsburgs promised concessions to these subjects in order to make them disperse, he recognised that such concessions could not hold for long. With Archduke Ferdinand's notorious reputation preceding him, and with Rudolf and Matthias providing no children, it seemed certain that Archduke Ferdinand would succeed to the imperial throne, unless some replacement candidate was found. Ferdinand's success in extirpating heresy from his Styrian lands and his Jesuit upbringing greatly increased the likelihood that he would challenge the concessions which Rudolf and Matthias had given to their Hungarian, Bohemian and Austrian subjects. Matthias, for his own part, had never been very comfortable with the fact that these subjects had wrested such concessions from him under duress, and he viewed these concessions as illegitimate for that very reason. And he consistently attempted, through the wiles of a man called Melchior Cleasel, who we met in the last episode, to undermine them. It should also be reiterated that Anhalt had seen the Habsburgs violate their commitments to the constitution and to their subjects in the past. We keep on mentioning Donnerwerth as the most striking example, but the incredibly unwise adventure of Archduke Leopold as he attempted to force the Bohemians to stand down over 1611-1612, were as expensive and ruinous as they were illuminating for Anhalt. 
Here were the Habsburgs once again undermining the promises they had made to their subjects. Here again were the Habsburgs attempting to use force in their own lands to arrive at the religious settlement that they wanted, rather than the one that these subjects wanted. With Protestantism overwhelmingly the major religion in Austria, Bohemia and Hungary, though the Counter-Reformation was gathering momentum, Christian of Anhalt was also likely perturbed by the sight of the religiously besieged Catholic Habsburgs attempting to restrict the rights of the majority. In addition to these developments, and the spark of dawn of earth which ignited the Evangelical Union, there was also the Ulick Cleave Crisis, which remained unsolved over 1609-14, and threatened at all times to pull the Evangelical Union into a war with the Catholic League, with both sides availing of foreign support. For a variety of reasons, as we've seen, the Ulick Cleave Crisis didn't spark a major confessional or political civil war in the Empire. However, this doesn't mean that these events, taken together, did not serve to shape or even confirm Anhalt's convictions. Anhalt was always on the lookout for opportunities, and when he noted in 1617 that, under Cleasel's orders, the Catholic League had effectively disbanded, it seemed possible that the religious tensions in the empire would decrease, as, surely, the Evangelical Union would disband just as the Catholic League had done. And yet, Anhalt refused to consider disbanding the Union, not only because he could not bring himself to trust the pledges of even the more moderate Melchior Cleasel, but also because he may have learned of Maximilian of Bavaria's efforts to forge ahead with a secret alliance of German Catholic potentates. We should also bear in mind the effect upon Anhalt's psyche that the gradual deterioration in the security of the Evangelical Union must have had. Since it had been established in 1608, with the memory of Don of Earth fresh in everyone's minds, the Union recruited some new members, and even though Saxony remained out of reach, its prospects appeared good, and it made a much better showing during the Eudic Cleave Crisis than its Catholic League counterpart, which splintered apart due to Habsburg interference and distrust of the Bavarians. From 1614, though, the once stable Evangelical Union started to shed members, and Anhalt was forced to watch as much of his hard work was chipped away by the sheer unwillingness of the Union's members to pay their required fees or contribute the required soldiers. In April 1617, just as the Catholic League officially disbanded, Anhalt endured further setbacks when the Union, now propped up with Palatine monies, lost two key members. Brandenburg and Hesse-Castle, after their rulers became irritated at the concessions that Anhalt had been forced to make to keep the whole edifice of the Evangelical Union together. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. He had kept it together, and he could note with satisfaction that he had done so in spite of direct orders from the emperor to disband. And yet, the union, which limped into 1618, was nowhere near as strong as it had once been. Frederick would rely on this union, but it was a shadow of its once enthusiastic, confident self. In order to keep the Union in existence, Anhalt had conceded the right of the Union's members for a veto against any military ventures in the future, and the Union was not required to aid non-members of the Union either. Both concessions were individually devastating, but to concede both effectively doomed the Union to paralysis. Even in its original form, the Evangelical Union had not contained a majority of Protestant princes. As Peter H. Wilson had noted, the majority of princes on the Protestant and Catholic side of the fence desired to remain neutral and wanted no part of this militarising effort. The Protestant Union also had lacked Saxony, which reduced its credibility abroad, even with the son-in-law of the King of Britain at its head from 1614. With these concessions granted, though, the Union would be able to remain aloof from any conflict that emerged in the future, and there was also now no danger that a conflict between other Protestant princes could draw the Union in. In the context of his declining Union, we should not be surprised to see Anhalt turn to more desperate schemes to insulate the Palatinate against the Habsburg conspiracy, which he believed in. During the Uzcock War between the Austrians and Venice, and the Mantuan War of Succession, Anhalt sent representatives to Venice, Savoy, the Bohemian Estates, the Austrian Estates, and France, in order to take advantage of the doubly distracted Habsburgs, but all these efforts were in vain. By 1617, Anhalt's convictions regarding the coming of a religious war and the presence of an overarching Habsburg conspiracy had not abated. If anything, these beliefs had intensified, buoyed by the presence of several doomsaying prophecies, which many in Europe also bought into. From the Calvinist Academy at Herborn, established in 1584, came several Calvinist preachers convinced that the Habsburgs represented the forces of darkness portrayed in the Book of Revelation. Interestingly, this interpretation was the complete opposite of the official imperial presentation of Revelation, which saw the empire as the direct continuation of ancient Rome, as well as its final phase. One preacher, Johann Heinrich Alsted, declared his belief that the empire was the fourth unnamed beast of Revelation, and that its end was nigh. More incredible still was the fate which the likes of Alsted prophesied for the empire. Through his interpretation of Revelation and the book of Daniel, Alsted became convinced that a southern king would overrun the sanctuary of Calvinism, Lutheranism, and all non-Catholic creeds, and force them to renounce their faith until a king of the north intervened to defeat the southern king and deliver his people. Considering these stark predictions and the course of the Thirty Years' War which was to follow, with Habsburg triumph and repressive religious policies, followed by a blindingly successful Swedish intervention 
by Gustavus Adolphus, that lion in the north, it's hardly surprising that preachers like Alsted later felt vindicated even if their doom-laden prophecies were not in the majority of Protestant believers' minds. Yet it should be noted that Alsted was not alone, and his intellectual background granted a veneer of respectability to apocalyptic pronouncements like these. Coupled with Alsted's profile and the increasingly harsh weather brought on by the Little Ice Age, these weather events culminated in the sighting of Halley's Comet in November 1618, and shortly thereafter, more than 100 pamphlets preaching incoming disaster were published to an eager readership. Sightings of comets and apocalyptic predictions were nothing new for the time, but in combination with the additional tensions, the confessional hostility and the belief in a Habsburg conspiracy, we shouldn't understate the impact of these factors, which may well have compelled radical Protestant preachers and leaders to incite the very disaster that they feared. With the aforementioned challenges facing the Austrian Habsburgs, above all the childless Emperor Matthias providing no direct successor, as early as Matthias's election in 1612, Palatine diplomacy had worked to place an alternative candidate on the imperial throne. At the same time, Palatine preachers had published tracts and sermons designed to bridge the gaps between Calvinists and Lutherans with a view towards preparing for the confrontation with Habsburg Catholicism. Various societies and groups were established within the Palatinate for the very purpose of bringing the different sects of Protestantism together, while she led a military alliance of some Protestant powers. Leadership within Protestant German society was also a goal, especially once the concessions to the remaining members of the Evangelical Union rendered that organisation a lot less effective. Rather than the machinations of the Habsburgs, it was in fact the opposition of Lutheran Saxony that truly blocked this Palatine initiative. With the centenary of the Reformation celebrated in October 1617, the Saxon elector John George and his court preacher were together determined to reassert Saxon predominance over German Protestants through the traditional method of defying the papacy. Martin Luther was celebrated as the German Moses, and his likeness and achievements marked with commemorative medals in school plays and through several fireworks displays. Saxon policy was to distinguish between honest Catholics that respected the 1555 Augsburg settlement and those that sought to undermine it, and the Empire. This enabled the Saxon elector, John George, to support the Habsburgs as the legitimate possessors of the imperial title, but also to oppose destabilising confessional quarrels and the vision of the Jesuits. For these reasons, Saxony had remained aloof from Palatine efforts to round up all Protestants under the banner of the Evangelical Union. John George would display a reverence for traditionalism and peace rather than make any great efforts to oppose the Habsburgs in league with the Palatinate. Because of Saxony's reputation and standing with the Empire in Europe, it proved immensely difficult for Anhalt to unite Protestants without the Saxon presence. Unity among Protestants was far from an easy task. For example, around the same time of the Reformation centenary celebrations, Württemberg, a member of the Evangelical Union, issued a decree that lumped Calvinists, along with Jesuits, the Pope, tyrants and Turks, as common threats to the faith. Many Lutherans regarded Calvinists with still more hostility than Catholics, since the former had diluted the gains made by the Reformed Church under the 1555 Peace of Augsburg, and Calvinists had also gained at Lutheranism's expense. Indeed, as we have seen, 
It was this very division within Protestantism that recommended the old Catholic faith to disillusion nobles, princes and citizens of the empire. Before we go any further, I want to just remind you guys of something. This may or may not be relevant to you, but on the 27th of June, that is this Saturday, if you're listening to this when this episode comes out on Wednesday, Intelligent Speech is having a conference, an online conference, and it will cost you about 15 bucks in order to watch it. You can watch through four different rooms, online rooms that is, and several different podcasters, all of a very high caliber, will be taking part. So I really encourage you to check it out. We've mentioned Intelligent Speech before, but it is a fantastic way for you to see your podcasters in action. And it's also a great way to support these initiatives and make sure we can do more of them in the future. A huge thanks should go out to Lyceum, that app which I've mentioned before, where you can access all your favourite history or educational podcasts, and also engage in discussions, because Lyceum was generous enough to support and sponsor Intelligent Speech, and because of that, we're able to go ahead with it with an awful lot of confidence and excitement. I'm looking forward to taking part in it myself. I'll be doing a Q&A in the afternoon of Saturday, the 27th of June, so make sure you tune in for that. My PhD and the very busy nature of that means that I won't be able to do a dedicated talk, but hopefully the Q&A will still whet your appetite anyway. It's something I'm happy to take part in and I will seriously promote them till the cows come home because things like these are very exciting. To see us all come together and work for the common good is something that I think anyone with an interest in history or educational podcasts generally should support. So that's why I'm doing so. You can find out more about Intelligent Speech by clicking the link in the description below or simply going to intelligentspeechconference.com and clicking book now. You can also, and there will be a link to this as well, look at the program that's up at the moment and see if any of it whets your appetite or tickles your fancy. I know I'm using really old terms here, but sometimes weird things just come to my mind when I'm talking on the fly like this, so I hope you'll forgive me. In any case, let's continue on with our story. Throughout 1617, perhaps due to the Reformation centenary, the confessional differences between Calvinist, Palatinate and Lutheran Saxony were exacerbated, and the court preachers in both regions accused the other of dishonesty and sabotage of the Reformation's legacy. It is significant that Melchior Kleesel's plans for stabilising the empire were also adversely affected by this inter-Protestant hostility, since the rhetoric employed by both sides convinced many Catholics that any notion of all Christian Germans banding together for the sake of imperial unity would not be possible. While Anhalt could despair that Saxony seemed to be ignoring the danger which the Habsburgs posed to Protestantism and the Empire, it was once John George displayed a cynical unscrupulousness in his partitioning of Bohemia that Frederick V would bitterly decry the Saxon short-sightedness and betrayal of Protestantism like never before. Evidently, the sanctity of the empire was only of interest to John George, so long as no risks to his person existed, and he could discern some clear opportunity for personal gain. To Frederick, as much as to Anhalt, John George's behaviour represented a disaster for the Palatinate and for Protestantism. It is often said that Anhalt effectively ran the Palatinate's foreign policy during the period, and that it was his views and fears which moved Palatine diplomats into action, rather than his technical master, Frederick V, the Elector. Indeed, as we've alluded to before, 
Wedgwood interprets the conflict which followed as flowing from Anhalt's pen and ambitions, portraying the senior Christian of Anhalt as more than capable of manipulating his younger master, who bowed without much resistance to his expertise. Wedgwood also seemed to be on a certain mission, to paint Anhalt as a corrupting influence in the Palatine court, an influence which corrupted Frederick from a young age. Wedgwood also gives little consideration to the fact that, from the 1560s, the Palatinate had been fixed in its opposition to the Habsburgs, and there was no reason why Frederick would have grown up to believe in anything other than that policy and mission which he had inherited from his grandfather. As Brennan Purcell wrote, there is much to be gained from examining the practical situation which the Elector and Anhalt operated within. Since Anhalt spent most of his time in Amberg as the governor of the Upper Palatinate, and since Frederick rarely viewed that part of his lands, preferring the more sumptuous surroundings of Heidelberg and the Lower Palatinate along the Rhine, this meant that Anhalt and Frederick were not in each other's company very often. Unless he maintained a consistently steady relationship with Frederick, there was no way for Anhalt to impose his will upon his prince, as he supposedly managed to do. Frederick's signature was required on any piece of documentation Anhalt provided him with, and this meant that Anhalt was never in a genuine position to act independently of the elector. Frederick may well have been influenced by Anhalt's experience, and he was impressed by learned, talented and resourceful men, which Anhalt certainly was. However, to claim that Frederick had no policy of his own is to misconstrue the elector's position. Frederick did have a policy. It was the one he had been brought up to promote, and the one which he had come to believe was correct and true. For better or worse, his beliefs were his own to hold, and his mistakes were his own to make. While the Palatine intervention in the Bohemian Revolt represented the culmination of Palatine-Habsburg competition, this competition in itself was not at all new. On several occasions between the 1560s and 1618, the Palatinate had featured on the opposite side to the Habsburgs in various imperial disputes. In 1591, as we've seen, Christian of Anhalt had even helped to lead a Palatine army into France in a bid to empower French Protestants against the Austro-Spanish Habsburg Catholic cause. The end goal of Palatine diplomacy was the usurpation of the Habsburg family from their position atop the imperial food chain and to recommend a new candidate as Holy Roman Emperor. It may appear only reasonable to attack such policies as deliberately destructive and counter to the prosperity and stability of the German Empire. Had the Palatinate merely acceded to the idea of Habsburg predominance, then perhaps the Thirty Years' War would never have occurred. However, we must consider at the same time the very real struggle which the Habsburgs engaged with from the late 1500s with their own subjects, who were largely Protestant. This history of confrontation, tension and concession is one which we've already examined, but it should be reiterated that in their quest to establish as firm a base as possible for their imperial ambitions, the Habsburgs trod on and undermined the Protestant populations within their hereditary lands wherever they could. Why should these actions by the Habsburgs, which went so evidently against the grain of the wishes of their own subjects, whom the Habsburgs were tasked with protecting, be considered any more legitimate or acceptable than those actions undertaken by Palatine diplomacy to remove the Habsburgs from this position, where it seemed clear they did not fit. To this we have to add that the Palatinate was by no means the only power to try and effect a change in the leadership of the Holy Roman Empire. France, too, 
had demonstrated its eagerness to destroy the power base of the House of Austria for its own ends, and King Henry II of France even made an effort to put himself forward as the candidate for the looming imperial election in the 1550s, as Charles V neared his end. The French intervention in the empire effectively vanished, of course, once the French wars of religion in the latter half of the 16th century forced the French monarchy to focus its attentions inward. Furthermore, it's often remarked that the citizens of Austria, Bohemia and Hungary made use of threats posed by the Ottomans to wring religious concessions from their Habsburg overlords in return for pledges to support the Habsburgs in the war. Before such behaviour is criticised as disloyal, we must consider how much the sincere beliefs of these subjects were worth and if they were worth sacrificing in the name of maintaining the Habsburg supremacy. Finally, and this is the last point, this very Habsburg supremacy and control over the office of Holy Roman Emperor had only been achieved because the Habsburgs had supplanted their rivals, the mostly forgotten these days House of Luxembourg, in 1438. And this was after several years of strategic marriage and intrigue. The Habsburg family, in other words, was only the latest dynasty to cling to the more important positions and titles which granted it invaluable power and influence in Europe. The Habsburg position in the office of emperor, in other words, was not sacred. Previous Habsburg efforts did not distinguish that dynasty as somehow predestined to retain this office. There was no guarantee, particularly with the recent troubles and divisions afflicting the family, that the Habsburgs would cling to the office of Holy Roman Emperor until its extinction in 1806. Nor was there any way for Palatine diplomatists to predict that the Habsburgs would remain a staple feature of European relations until 1918. With the benefit of hindsight, it's possible to highlight the Palatine actions as contributing to the conflagration which would follow. In everything that Anhalt and Frederick did, though, they maintained that they acted with the interests of German Protestants and the Empire's constitution in mind. Anhalt and Frederick had not worked with the Habsburg's enemies in Europe to destroy what the Palatinate would never be able to win. Such pettiness was not within Frederick's character, especially when so much was on the line. But if you think this different interpretation should be seen as an apology for the actor Palatine on my part, then it has to be emphasised before we reach the more tumultuous portions of this narrative that Ferdinand acted with similar sincerity, conviction and tenacity when it came to religious matters. Much like Frederick, Ferdinand believed he was acting in the interests of his dynasty and his faith. He may have made mistakes in realising this vision, but he wasn't a villain determined to burn and destroy without a true purpose. At the same time, one could argue that Ferdinand was needlessly ruthless to his enemies following his triumph, but there is no indication that a total victory, let's just say, achieved by Frederick's anti-Hasburg allies would have been less intolerant or controversial. Propaganda pamphlets on both sides would try to paint the enemy invariably as the enemy of German liberties, of the true religion, and even as the Antichrist. It is important we don't place too much stock in this propaganda. The Thirty Years' War was a conflict rife with difficult choices and terrible consequences, rather than genuinely one of God versus the devil, as the rhetoric implied. If Anhalt could not rally all Protestants to his side in the name of combating the monolithic Habsburg influence, then he would have to work to delay the imperial succession until this goal was possible. Yet, much like Melchior Kleisel, Christian of Anhalt was running out of time, 
as Matthias was already in failing health by the time Ferdinand was confirmed as King of Bohemia in June 1617. The election of Ferdinand as King of Bohemia also seemed to thwart Anhalt's plans to orchestrate a plan against a smooth Habsburg succession, and the One Treaty ensured that Spain would now fight to ensure that Ferdinand succeeded Matthias in all his titles. Consider Anhalt's genuine belief in a Habsburg Catholic conspiracy against German liberties. More than a decade of confessional tension, the crippling of traditional means of redress, the confirmation of Anhalt's fears, the splintering of Protestantism still further, and the shattering defeats inflicted upon Palatine diplomacy. And perhaps we can account for his outlook on life. It is in the context of these developments that the Bohemian Revolt, erupting on the 23rd of May 1618, must be examined. While it was a disaster for the Habsburgs, to Christian of Anhalt, it represented a fresh opportunity, a second chance, to focus the energies of the anti-Habsburg group by threatening again the succession of Ferdinand to the office of Holy Roman Emperor. This was to prove an opportunity, tragically enough, that Christian of Anhalt could not resist. Alright, history friends, so in this episode we've brought the other significant ingredient in the Thirty Years' War, the Palatinate, up to date. And hopefully now you're up to speed with the different perspectives and fears in Europe in 1618. This episode here can be seen as the kind of calm before the storm, because from this point onwards, war would pretty much be a staple of European relations, at least in some part of Europe, and that means that war will also be a staple part of this series. The main difference in terms of content from here on in is that peacetime diplomacy will no longer be our sole focus, but that doesn't mean we're going to be abandoning diplomacy altogether, of course. War was about to touch the Holy Roman Empire, and it would not be fully expunged until 1648. So I hope you'll join me next time to pick the story up again. Until next time, though, history friends and patrons, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 15 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening. Remember to check out intelligencespeechconference.com and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.